Welcome to Scripture Studies, a verse-by-verse study of the Bible. I'm your host, Scott Sperling. Today we'll be starting a study of Romans chapter 13. We'll be looking at the first seven verses of that chapter. So grab your Bible, sit back, and open your hearts and minds as we study the Word of God together. As we continue our study in the book of Romans, we find ourselves in chapter 13. So you can turn there in your Bibles. Romans chapter 13, verse 1. As we head towards the end of this great book, Paul is giving us some practical instructions about how to live our lives as Christians. In this section, he addresses our relationship with local authorities and governments. And in my opinion, he says some things which are quite surprising concerning the governments and earthly rulers. So let's read today's passage, and then we'll come back and dig into it. We'll be reading Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Quote, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants, who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor." The overall sentiment expressed here by Paul is not all that surprising, I don't think. Submit to authorities. Obey the laws. However, Paul does say some surprising things in these verses about God's participation in human governments. As an example, let's look at verse 1. The first phrase says, quote, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, unquote. And as I said, that makes sense. We don't want chaos down here. We don't want anarchy. But then Paul goes on to say, quote, For there is no authority except that which God has established, unquote. And then Paul doubles down on that, just in case we weren't paying attention by continuing, quote, The authorities that exist have been established by God. Those are surprising statements, I think. There is no authority except that which God has established. And we'll tackle that in a second. But let's begin at the beginning. Paul, again, begins by giving us a general instruction about the Christian's relationship to the governing authorities. Quote, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. Unquote. At the time that Paul wrote this, This was an important clarification to be made to Christians of that era. Christians had accepted Jesus as their Lord. And so a natural question would be, well, since Jesus is my Lord, to what extent do I need to obey mere earthly authorities? 
The kingdoms and governments of the world at that time were pagan governments, and they often established local temples to false gods. This, by the way, was a convenient way to raise income on top of the various taxes that were charged. The Roman temples raised a lot of money for the Roman Empire. Moreover, by and large, the authorities came to power through conquest and stayed in power through oppression. The leaders were, by and large, evil men. So again, naturally, Christians would ask themselves, do I need to obey these evil men? Paul's answer is, yes, you do need to submit to the local authorities and obey the local laws. In general, allegiance to God does not negate the responsibility to obey local ordinances. Peter agreed with Paul and offered up similar teaching. Let's read 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 13 through 17. Quote, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor." Peter here ties our obedience to authorities to our Christian witness, or as he says, by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. And Peter also goes beyond just being obedient to authorities and submitting to authorities. Peter tells us actually to honor them, as he says, Quote, love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor, unquote. This is similar to what Paul says back here in Romans, down in verse 7, where he wraps up this section by saying, quote, give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor, unquote. The implication here is that we should respect and honor the governmental authorities. And Paul goes even beyond that, giving an instruction in 1 Timothy for us to do for our governmental authorities one of the best things that we could do for others. Here's what he says in 1 Timothy 2, verses 1-4. through Quote, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth." So, we're to pray for them, and he doesn't mean to pray to get rid of them, as we're tempted to do. No, we're to pray for them in general, and also what's implied here is that we should specifically pray for their salvation. As Paul says in verse 4 there, that God wants all people to be saved. Well, he may say, uh, well, Paul didn't know how bad this or that president is, or or governor, or or king, or whatever, Uh, or he never would have written this. Well, keep in mind who the emperor was when both Peter and Paul wrote these things. The emperor was none other than Nero, one of the absolutely worst leaders in the history of the world. And I'm sure that those who were part of the church in Rome at that time, remember here that Paul is writing to the Romans, uh, 
I'm sure they were saying, what? Are you crazy, Paul? Submit to Nero? Pray for Nero? Honor Nero? So certainly, if they were told to submit to, pray for, and honor Nero, these instructions undoubtedly apply to us, no matter who the president or ruler is of our country, and, and no matter how different his or her politics is from ours. Nor does it matter even if the government is a cruel and oppressive government. We are still to submit to their authority. David was an example in this. Saul, for some reason, had developed an extreme hatred for David. Saul was the king of Israel at the time. And, and so Saul set out to have David killed. At one point, David found himself in a position where he, he could have actually killed Saul. Here's what happened. Let's read 1 Samuel uh, chapter 26, verses 8 through 10. Quote, Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, David said, The Lord himself will strike him, or his time will come and he will die, or he will go into battle and perish." Unquote. It's not our sanction to take on the role of government. We are not to take into our own hands the meeting out of justice, etc. That's the role of government as established by God, and that's the role of God himself in his sovereignty. Submit to the authorities, pray for them, even honor them. This is the correct behavior of the Christian. Let's talk a few minutes about what it means to submit to authorities. Clearly, the primary idea is that we obey the local laws, and in general, that's Paul's message to us. We are not to have the attitude where we say, oh, Mayor so-and-so is not a Christian, so I don't have to do what he says. The religious affiliation of our leaders should have no effect on whether we obey the local laws. That's one of Paul's points here. The word Paul uses, submit, means to recognize one's subordinate place in a hierarchy. And as a general rule, acknowledge that certain people or institutions have authority over us. In general, submission to others is a commendable Christian trait, closely tied to humility. Submission to others doesn't mean that you are, you are of less value than others. It just means that there's an established hierarchy to maintain order in society, and Christians need to support that established order. Also, submission to others is encouraged for Christians in order to keep peace. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 12, quote, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Unquote. So then, it should not be surprising that when society has an established hierarchy, Christians are instructed to respect that hierarchy and submit to those in charge. Albert Barnes says that this word submit denotes the kind of submission which soldiers render to those above them in rank. It's a willingness and requirement to yield to authority, and such a thing is necessary for the military to function properly. And it's the same way with society in general. Now, you might ask, is this always the case? Are there exceptions to this? 
And certainly Paul wrote this verse in a general way, and it is generally true that we are to follow this instruction. But we can infer from other writings and from Paul's behavior as documented in other writings that there are exceptions to this, though I must say they are rare. The exceptions have to do with the hierarchy that Paul gives us in these verses. Let's look at the second part of verse 1. Quote, For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Unquote. The hierarchy established here by Paul is that God is over all. God himself established the governing authorities, and so he is over all of them. So then, just as if you were in the military and your sergeant told you to do something, and then when you were on your way to do that, a general came along and tells you to drop whatever you're doing and do something else, you would obey the ranking authority, which is the general. So also, if a local governing authority tells you to do something which is clearly contrary to a command of God, you are to obey God. And there are examples of this in the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts. Let's look at Acts chapter 4, verses 18 to 20. Here the Sanhedrin, who were the local governing authorities for the Jews in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin called Peter and John in, and here's what they said, quote, then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Unquote. And then later, when Peter and John were rearrested for not listening to the Sanhedrin, here's what Peter said in Acts 5, verse 29. Quote, we must obey God rather than human beings. Unquote. This was right because Jesus, who was Lord over all, gave the disciples clear instructions to preach the gospel in, in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We find that in Acts 1.8. So then, there are times that we can, I guess, ignore the instructions of the governing authorities, but only if these instructions prevent us from carrying out a clear command of God. And this is rare, especially here in America where, where I live. And really, I can think of very few examples in America where it would be right for us to ignore the instructions of the governing authorities. Now let's focus for a few minutes on how surprising it is what Paul is saying here. It's really a surprising thing that he says. Let's read again the last part of verse 1. Quote, There is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Unquote. To me, that's quite a surprising thing for Paul to say. It's a surprisingly general statement about God's involvement in all governments here on earth. Let's keep in mind the context of when Paul was writing, as we discussed before. Paul wasn't writing this under a government like we have here in America, with freedoms and with a strong justice system. Paul was writing this as a subject uh, of Rome. And more than that, under the emperor Nero, historically one of the worst world leaders, uh, you know, the world has ever known. It would be easy for us to say, oh, the government here in America was established by God, but much harder to say, oh, the government in Rome under Nero was established by God. 
So that's quite surprising and even difficult to, for us to comprehend. I mean, think of all the horrible regimes there have been in history and, and that even exist now. And yet Paul says unequivocally, the authorities that exist have been established by God. What does that mean exactly? Frankly, it's a tough subject to teach. Certainly, from a general point of view, our God is a God of order, and in general, governments impose order, some better than others, of course. Even the worst of human governments provide some level of order. Any government is usually better than anarchy, I think. And so, in order to do our part in keeping order, we need to obey the local laws and be subject to the governmental authorities. But Paul, in what he is saying, is going beyond God's general approval of governments as an institution. Paul is saying that all governments everywhere have been instituted by God. The U.S. government, the French government, the, the North Korean government, the Iranian government. Paul leaves no room for exception. Let's read it again. End uh, of verse 1 into verse 2. Quote, there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. That's quite an unequivocal statement. One thing that this implies is that God is in control. And also, God is working his will on a global basis. Jesus, in a way, also affirmed this teaching of Paul's during an exchange with Pilate. Let's look at... John chapter 19, verses 10 and 11. Quote, Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Unquote. Jesus is telling Pilate that any power that he has was given to him by God. We also see an extreme example of this in a prophecy in the book of Revelation. Let's look at Revelation uh, chapter 13, verses 5 through 7. There John speaks about someone symbolically called the beast, and this person rises to be a governing authority. Let's read what it, let's read what it says again. Uh, Revelation 13, verses 5 through 7. Quote, the beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opens its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation." Unquote. Now, the words was given, used so many times in this passage, imply that God was allowing all this to happen. And there are times when God will even allow governing authorities to persecute his people. Let's continue in the same passage in Revelation and read verses 8 through 10. Quote, all inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people." Unquote. The implication seems to be here that God's people who didn't worship the beast 
Well, they were persecuted for it. And recall that John said the beast was given his authority with the implication that God gave the beast his authority. Or to put it another way, God was allowing the beast to come to power and then to persecute Christians. Now, admittedly, the example of the beast is a bit of a special case. John was speaking of events leading up to the end times. And certainly during those times, there will be special purposes that God will be working towards. So actually, I would say that using the example of the beast in Revelation isn't really the best way to validate Paul's teaching in Romans 13. Because as I said, the end times are a unique situation and the beast will be part of how God brings everything to an end here on earth. But that case does apply to Romans 13 in the sense that God is active here on earth and at times does intervene to work things out according to his purposes, even going to lengths of, you know, instituting certain governments, even governments that are hostile to Christianity. Now, with respect to, shall we say, more normal situations, Paul, as I said, does seem to be unequivocal in saying that God does have a role in instituting any and all governments here on earth. And this is a difficult teaching, given how many messed up governments there have been in history in general, and even how many messed up governments there are now. But one thing we must understand, and this I think is a point that we can infer from what Paul is saying here, also taking into account how things have played out in human history. One thing that we can infer is that God did not, by and large, institute governments to be an extension of Christianity or of religion in general. That's not the purpose of governments. We can infer this by the fact that, as Paul teaches here, there is no authority that except that which God has established. And yet, as we know, there are really no governments here on earth which are seeking as a primary goal to advance the gospel here on earth. And yet, God has established all these various governments which are patently not advancing gospel teachings or even advancing the kingdom of God in any way. So given this, the inference that I draw from this is that God did not intend governments to be an extension of religion in any way. It's not God's intention that human governments be tied to, or not especially, rule over the church. I think the inference that we can draw from what's written here in Romans 13, married with the testimony of human history, I think the inference that we can draw is that God intends church and state to be separate. If God intended church and state to be one entity, he would have established Christian governments, led by Christian leaders. And yet, clearly, God has not done that. God created governments and establishes governments to keep order, not to advance the gospel. Otherwise, as I said, he would have established Christian governments. In fact, if that were God's plan, that is to mix church and state, then the world would be full of Christian governments but it isn't. Now, why do you suppose that God would keep church and state separate? Why wouldn't God want Christian kingdoms established and Christian democracies established and Christian empires established all the world over? Well, I don't want to presume to completely know the mind of God, but I can venture an opinion. I think the reason that it seems that God does not want church and state to be mingled is that we humans are sinful. And if we combine church and state, what occurs is not that the state becomes holy, but that the church 
gets corrupted. It's just as Lord Acton famously said, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. At least that's how many people always remember that quote. Here's what Lord Acton actually said, and really the circumstances surrounding his delivering of this great piece of insight, the circumstances actually apply to what we're talking about here today. Lord Acton originally wrote this, quote, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men, unquote. Lord Acton was a prominent Roman Catholic scholar, and he wrote this in the context of arguing against the doctrine of papal infallibility. You may not realize this, but the Roman Catholic doctrine of papal infallibility was not codified until 1870. It wasn't a doctrine that goes way back in Roman Catholic history. And Lord Acton argued and lobbied strongly against it. He knew his history. And he knew that if you look back in history, given the corruption of many of the popes in history, he knew that popes in no way, shape, or form were infallible. Moreover, he feared that stating that they were infallible, he feared that this would be a corrupting influence upon them because it just added to the power that they already had. And Lord Acton knew and believed that absolute power corrupts absolutely. Anyway, we're kind of getting off topic here, but this all ties in with why I think God has chosen not to mix church and state, and he has established all of these governments throughout history. It's because humans are sinful and power corrupts. And so when you claim that, hey, look here, I've established a Christian government, forever after this Christian government will be a government ruled by Christians and church and state will be combined into one institution and all things will be perfect. Well, as I said, what happens when you try to do that or or say that, well, what happens is not that the state becomes holy, but the church becomes corrupted because power corrupts and, and humans are sinful. And I hear Christians say this all the time. Well, I wish our government was a Christian government. Uh, I wish that the government enforced Christian principles and, and that someone couldn't be president or whatever unless they were a Christian. And to that I say, no, you don't want that because power corrupts. And when the church and state become intertwined, the state doesn't become holy. Rather, the church gets corrupted. And in fact, think about it. Even when God established the nation of Israel, he didn't intertwine the church and the state. The priest was not the king, nor vice versa. In fact, early on, Saul tried to blur that line and was soundly rebuked by the prophet Samuel. Let's read, uh, well, we'll look at 1 Samuel 13. In that chapter, Saul was on a war campaign and there were no priests around. And so he started offering his own offerings, taking on the role of priest. And he got soundly rebuked for it by uh, Samuel in 1 Samuel. You can find that in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 13. So even in the nation of Israel, church and state were not intertwined. And that was God's wisdom. Do you think that Saul would have been a good religious leader? He proved that he wasn't in his life. The traits and skills and actions required to be a successful governmental leader are, if you think about it, 
quite the opposite of, a, of the sanctified life that God calls us to. To be Christ-like, we need to be humble, to serve others, to submit to others in humility. The life of a politician is all about me. Look how great I am. Even David, the king after God's own heart, even David was sullied by his actions that he had to take as king. David wanted to build the temple for the Lord, but his actions as king, necessary though they were, sullied him. God told David that he couldn't build the, uh, the temple. Let's look at 1 Chronicles 22, verse 8. Quote, But this word of the Lord came to me. You have shed much blood and fought many wars. You are not to build a house for my name, because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. Unquote. Great as David was, the actions that he took as a king, actions that were even correct as the leader of Israel, those actions sullied him such that God didn't want him to build the temple. So even in Israel, God kept church and state separate. And we should keep this in mind. In my opinion, many Christians are trying far too hard to mix church and state, to mix politics and Christianity. Politics and Christianity are far too intertwined these days, even to the point where many Christians believe, say, that you can't be a Christian unless you're a Republican. And that's ridiculous. And to tell you the truth, I think that such an opinion is borderline sinful. Because by thinking that, you're excluding about half of the population of the United States from the gospel. And that's just wrong. It's not our job to exclude anyone from receiving the gospel message. We need to welcome into our local church everyone, even if they don't agree with our political beliefs. And frankly, we should keep our political opinions out of the church grounds because politics are divisive. And we need to create an environment where everyone, no matter what their political stripe is, where everyone feels welcome to learn about Christ and learn about the gospel and seek to know Christ. And you don't know how off-putting an off-handed political remark in the lobby might be to someone, especially given today's divisive political environment. So we all need to have some restraint in these matters and to be aware that our church is not some political club or whatever, and that political comments can ruin someone else's worship experience. That's the most important point to remember, I think. And you don't want to be the one who ruins someone else's worship experience. Think about that. Everything that goes on on the church property on Sunday morning needs to be centered on the worship of God and, and on Christ and on the gospel. It's as simple as that. And in fact, Paul has some great teaching which relates to this. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 23. Quote, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews I became a, like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law so as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. 
I do this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings." That's such a great passage. In other words, Paul's saying, find common ground with others in order to win them over to the gospel, rather than focusing on divisive matters. And what is more divisive than politics? So then, it's okay to have opinions about politics and to have a desire that governments do right and are just and fulfill their functions to keep order. But we need to leave that stuff in the parking lot, or even not even in the parking lot at the church, off the church grounds totally, and focus on Christ and the worship of God when we walk onto the church grounds. In any case, the church can and has and will survive no matter what sort of government is ruling the land. Paul wrote these words in Romans 13, as I've said a couple times before, under Nero, and, and who was a more unchristian leader than Nero in human history, and yet the church was thriving. In fact, I think that we can accept this teaching of Paul about God establishing each and every government here on earth. I think we can accept this teaching more if we we realize and recognize that human governments are a secular thing. They are things of this world. We can look at it from the point of view that it is God allowing the workings of humans to play out. When God created man, here's what he said in the councils of the Trinity. We find this in Genesis 1 verse 26, quote, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground." Humans were created to rule over this earth. That's one of the major things that we've been tasked with, and by and large, we have been given great responsibility for what goes on down here. But that doesn't mean that God is not involved. He is our Lord and the creator of all things, and so he has the ultimate power in the universe and here on earth. And Paul seems to be indicating that God does take a special interest in who rules the various nations on earth. And moreover, that there is no authority on earth who comes to power without God's knowing about it, at the very least, and allowing those rulers to come to power. And just like about anything here on earth under God's sanction, God is not responsible for whatever sinful behavior the leaders who are tasked with keeping the keeping order commit. Unfortunately, sin is intertwined with everything that occurs here on earth by fallen humans. So then, given that, we would do well to pray about our governments and our leaders. Um, God is involved in this, which is the very least that Paul is saying. And so I think it's a worthy subject of prayer, just as we looked at earlier when Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, uh, verses 1 and 2. Uh, he told him, I urge you then, First of all, that prayers, petitions, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, and all those in authority. So then, I think one of Paul's main points in all this is that God is involved in these things, and at the very least knows about and allows whatever leaders who come to power to come to power. And even more than that, it is strongly implied here that God takes an active role at times to give certain individuals power according to his plans and purposes. But let's take a step back and view things from a more macro level. And what I mean by that is that I think one of Paul's points here is that the institution of government here on earth in general has been established by God with the purpose of bringing order to things down here on earth. Paul goes on in verses 2 through 4 
of this passage in Romans, to talk a, a bit about the role of government in general to keep order. Let's read those verses, Romans 13, verses 2 through 4. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer." Implied in this section is the government's central role in keeping order by enforcing the local laws. If you do right, you will be commended, as Paul says. If you do wrong, you should be afraid, because the government wields the sword of justice and is, as Paul states, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Paul seems to be establishing here the primary reasons for the institution of governments, and that is to keep order and to maintain justice. And in fact, one can infer from this that this is, in God's eyes, the primary role of government. Keep order, maintain justice. Those are the primary reasons that governments exist. Governments are given the power by God to maintain justice and to keep order. That's why they, as Paul says, bear the sword. And so Paul gives simple and straightforward advice. If you want to avoid being terrorized by the government, then just do what is right, and odds are you'll be left alone. And in fact, Paul actually benefited multiple times by this. There are a few examples in the book of Acts where Paul is rescued from the violence of the crowds by making use of the fact that the government keeps order. Here's one of the examples. Paul was preaching to a crowd in Jerusalem, and there were some of the leaders of the Jews who were stirring up the crowd against him. At one point, Paul mentioned that he himself was tasked with preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, and this set off the crowd. And here's what happened. Let's read Acts chapter 19, verses 21 through 26. Uh, Paul's preaching here. Quote, Then the Lord said to me, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him, he's not fit to live. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. He directed that Paul be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. As they stretched him out to be flogged, Paul said to the centurion standing there, Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't been found guilty? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do? he asked. This man is a Roman citizen. So here, Paul actually uses the fact that Rome was a government of laws and they weren't allowed to flog a Roman citizen, no matter what the unruly crowd said. And as I said, there are a few other examples found in the book of Acts where Paul is protected by the fact that the government is established to keep order. But Paul continues in verse 5 and lets us know that there is more to submitting to authorities than just avoiding punishment by them. Here's what he says in verse 5, quote, Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience, unquote. Paul is telling us here that there is a moral component to keeping the law. 
We shouldn't just keep the law because we're afraid of punishment, though that's one reason to keep it. We should keep the law because it's the right thing to do, because it pleases God for us to do so. I think that's what he's getting at when he says that it's a matter of conscience. Paul sums up the teaching in verses 6 and 7 when he says, quote, This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor." Verse 6, of course, reflects Jesus' teaching about paying taxes. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. We are to pay our taxes. We owe our taxes to the government, as Paul implies here. Give to everyone what you owe them, Paul says. We owe our taxes to the government because the government maintains order in society. And Paul, in summary, expresses that we also owe our governmental leaders honor and respect. Even if on a, shall we say, personal level, you may not like this or that leader, nevertheless, you owe them respect for the office that they hold. You owe them respect as representatives of God-established governments. We hope you enjoyed today's study. If you're interested in other studies in this series, visit scripturestudies.com. That's scripturestudies, all one word, dot com. Or just Google Scripture Studies by Scott Sperling, and you're sure to find the site. The background music is licensed through Pond 5. The theme music and interludes are by Scott Sperling, all rights reserved. Until we meet again, live well, serve the Lord with passion, and always lean on the Holy Spirit. May the Lord be with you in all your endeavors. Amen.